the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As human beings, we have friendships and relationships where we can joke, we can vent, we can have fun uh, about silly, nonsensical things. Uh, but more importantly, uh, we can sharpen one another. And that has definitely been true uh, over the last 20 years with my relationship uh, with John. Uh, even even a couple weeks ago, just uh, him uh, sharpening me and, and giving me counsel and helping me uh, through a trial that I was going through. And so I say that because uh, he is a guy who is going to preach. And if you're here last night, you know he preaches well. He preaches uh, by the strength of the Holy Spirit. He preaches uh, not his own, but as if he were speaking the utterances of God, as we are looking at in First Peter. Uh, but it's not just preaching. It's not just preaching to us. It's not just preaching at us. He truly uh, lives out uh, what he is preaching to us and, and what he believes. Um, believe me uh, when I tell you in ministry he and his wife and his family, uh, more so obviously he and his wife, have been through the ringer. Uh, he has been in situations where he has faithfully counseled, faithfully preached, faithfully shepherded uh, in situations where, frankly, in my opinion, and I know in uh, Jenny's opinion as well, he was not treated the way he should have been uh, by the senior pastor or the elders or the finance committee or whatever it may be. And yet he's still faithfully uh, serving uh, and preaching. I hope you understand that I love preaching. And I do not take it lightly uh, when I ask someone to come and deliver uh, the word to my family, to my flock. And so, but with, with that understanding, it is with full confidence and with much joy uh, that I welcome up once again our speaker, John Cito. Please welcome him. Well, good morning, church. Um, <clears throat> It's always hard to follow a, an exceedingly gracious introduction, um, but I'll do my best. Uh, as I was talking to, to Roger about this weekend, uh, I asked him, oh, okay, well, uh, I should probably tell people a little bit more about myself and my family and introduce myself, but also to kind of let the church know uh, about how far back Roger and I go. Uh, and he told me that really this morning would be a better time to do that than last night, which is why last night was relatively brief. Uh, but my name is uh, John Sito. Just please call me John. If you, if you called me Dr. Sito, I'd look around for my father. If you called me Dr. John, I'd just laugh. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I grew I was blessed and privileged to grow up in a Christian home. Uh, I remember that I didn't set my alarm for church in the morning, uh, not because I was trying to skip out, although probably on my bad days that, that might have been true, uh, but it was because I would wake up to the sounds of my parents practicing to lead music in our church. And my mom would be playing the hymns and my dad would be, uh, would, would be leading and they would be practicing before service. And so that's 
my wake up uh, when I was growing up in my uh, as a kid, and I was always thankful for that. Um, Especially now, thinking back uh, to my childhood, I was very thankful that my parents made church a priority and they told me that life with Christ is more important than anything. But growing up in the church, you get familiar with everything, right? Everything, you're like, oh, Jesus, God, uh, sin, heaven. You know all the answers and you can give, you could basically get up there and compete on Bible Jeopardy if you really needed to. But is it real? And I remember as a young, as a young child, I was very arrogant. Uh, I, I, I found myself being very self-righteous. And I remember hearing distinct, uh, distinctly hearing a Sunday school teacher say, you know, none of you are ever going to be good enough for God. And you're not perfect. None of you will ever be good enough for God. And I remember as a kid, okay, I'm talking about like you know, south of 10 years old, looking at that, looking at that uh, Sunday school teacher going, well, have you really tried? <laughs> uh, and so I endeavored, uh, I mustered with all my might to try and be this perfect kid. Um, and of course, I failed, and I'd make up excuses. I'd go, well, that was a one-off. Okay, that was a bad day. We'll try again tomorrow. But that was a bad week. Some rough, ha- rough stuff happened at school. I, I got a bad assignment I had to do. So let's start next week. You know? And, and it, you know, the longer I'd make up excuses, the more it dawned on me. Like, are you kidding me? You really think you can be perfect? You really think you can please God? Absolutely not. No way, no how. Absolutely, you must be, you must be kidding yourself. And it was then that I started paying more attention to what the Sunday school teacher was saying. It was then that I said, no, actually, I need grace. Forget these other people in the room. I need grace. God does not grade on a, on a relative scale here. I need God's grace. I need God's forgiveness. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. I can never earn it. And so that started a very long journey. Uh, after becoming a Christian, it, it started a long journey of, of sanctification and growth and I think uh, there are enough people in this room that that you know when God is humbling you (laughs) because you just feel broken. And yet, from those pieces that God has broken you down into, he, he rebuilds you stronger than you were before and more dependent upon God than ever. Fast forward some years, I went to college and uh, in college I met Roger. At this point, I think Roger was in his first year at seminary and he was still uh, working with Grace on Campus at UCLA. Uh, I was a freshman at Grace on Campus UCLA. Uh, I was just kind of, you know, I, I was young. I didn't know much, um, but we, we met. I was frankly very intimidated by him. Uh, I still am. Uh, <laughs> Um, and then I think it was uh, sophomore year, I joined his small group. And I remember he would call me up, and um, this is back in the day when you didn't get good cell phone reception. So, so he'd call me up, and I had to stand in this like two, uh, this two by two square, uh, square foot area because that was the only place I got reception. And uh, you know, he, he'd go like, "Hey, you want to you want to go grab boba or something?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, let's get boba." And then of course, you know, we'd go and hang out, and then you know, he'd kind of we'd talk, we'd laugh, we'd hang out, and then and then he'd bring up some issue in my life, and I was like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> All right. 
you know, and then somebody comes by, would you like a refill? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> I don't need, I'm just, just leave it here. Uh, I'll need some boba for this one. But I remember distinctly just realizing and being shocked by my own sin. And by patterns in my life and in my conduct that I had not noticed before. It had never been brought to light. It had never been pointed out to me. And by God's grace, he brought a man named Roger into my life to kind of help me see these things. To basically take out a mirror and go, do you see yourself? Do you know that you do that? Because I didn't. And it was really such a blessing to my heart. Now, granted, there were times where I was like, oh, what time is it? He wants to go for boba? All right. Well, we better have some good boba tonight. Because I, I don't know. <laughs> but I remember just thinking to myself uh, later, just like, wow, God is really using this man in my life to mentor me, to disciple me, to help me grow. And there must be some greater plan. And fast forward, well, I guess it is 18 years or something, 19 years from the time we started meeting up one-on-one. And here I am, and I'm serving as a pastor. And, you know, when people, when people uh, come and, and they thank me and they say, oh, I've been really blessed by your ministry, I think about Roger. I think about the people who have invested in me. That it's not, it's not just me. It's God bringing different people in my life to help me grow. And so if they receive blessing, it is, it is because of God's work in my life through certain individuals. And so my entire church, if they have been blessed, and I certainly hope they have, my entire church has been blessed by your pastor, Roger. And I hope you understand how much of a blessing it is for you to have him and Jenny uh, caring for you. Even as we're talking, and I think we were talking in the back of the room here, he was kind of talking about some of you, oh, this guy, oh, this guy came from this area, and this guy does this, and he, he spoke about you like he talks about, uh, you know, like a proud father would speak of children. Just kind of going, oh, so cool that they're here now. They, they've got a great story. You've got to go talk to them. Uh, this couple came, and it's, it's been really cool. He talks about you in that way, with that delight and with that joy. As a shepherd who rejoices over the sheep that God has given to him. So, I just want you to know that's... When, when Roger and I talk about the good old days and the days of yore, that's that kind of what characterized and what typified our relationship. It was sharpening. Iron sharpening iron. And I am very thankful for him. So with that, let me, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer and we'll get into our text this morning. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your work in people's lives. And that you work through people to bless more people. And we thank you. Uh, we thank you for uh, your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege that it is to retreat and to spend some time together as a church family. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the time together. Not only our time in the word now, but also our times of fellowship after. And in all of these things, we, we pray that you would be honored and praised. In your son's name we pray. Amen. For the retreat theme this year, we are focused on marks of maturity. And again, last night I asked the question, I posed the question, what does it look like to be a mature Christian? What does it look like to be a mature Christian? What kind of attitudes does a mature Christian have? What kind of actions characterize a mature believer's life? And last night we started with the foundation 
Because the first really and most foundational mark of Christian maturity is having a deep faith in God. It's a faith that is informed by scripture. It is a faith that is fleshed out in everyday life. And this morning, as we approach our text found in Luke chapter 18, I want you to think for a moment about what happens in the midst of your fellowship group or your small group or your men's group or your women's group. When you go around and you talk about prayer requests, what's going on in your life, brother, sister? How can we be praying for you? How can we support you as your brothers and sisters in Christ? Every single time that, that, that period of your small group begins, it's a critical moment. Because it's a moment where each individual has to decide whether they're going to be honest and open and transparent or whether they're going to be shallow. You ever shared prayer requests to someone and you kind of, do you pour out your heart and you're just like, oh man, that, that was a lot. I just unloaded on you, brother. I'm sorry, but, but this is what's really going on in my life. And then that person goes, well, you can, you can pray for my uh, time management. And you sit there kind of wondering, is this, uh, am I on hidden camera or is this, wait, I just, I just unloaded on you the, the burdens that God has put on my heart and my soul. I've told you about struggles that I've long kept kind of hidden and quiet. And you're going to tell me you got issues with time management. You could have posted that on Facebook. You could have Instagrammed that. <laughs> We're one on one. It's just us. <laughs> if you've got something that's going on in your life, you could share it within this context. What explains the difference between sharing that is superficial and sharing that is deep, that is honest, that is really personal? I think we could characterize what explains the difference as fearing what other people think, as self-righteousness. Because if you shared something that you're really dealing with, you start asking yourself questions. What is this guy going to think about me if I say this? If I'm really honest, is he going to think less of me? Is she going to no longer want to have you know, a meal together? Is this person going to treat me different when, they, when, when I walk into church on a Sunday? Are they going to kind of walk for the other direction? Am I going to be judged here? Are they going to look down on me? I think one of the dangers facing the church and most churches today is the issue of self-righteousness. Is the issue of, well, <laughs> I don't want to share this because I want to look better in that, in that person's eyes. I don't want that person who may be self-righteous to judge me about whatever it is I'm going to say. What holds us back from sharing is oftentimes our fear of what others think. We think about how we're going to stack up against others. And at the heart of it, that's called self-righteousness. So let's talk about what Jesus says about self-righteousness and what prescriptions he offers for people who struggle with that. Either feeling it from other people or exhibiting it themselves. 
Jesus, the master storyteller, gives us a picture of self-righteousness at its finest. Look with me at Luke chapter 18. And let me just read the first verse for us. It says, and he, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 9, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So first, he starts off with this story that is meant to talk about this issue of self-righteousness. What will he say? Look with me at verses 10 to 12. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So Jesus starts off this story with two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And these two men could not have been farther apart on the spectrum of spirituality in Israel. The Pharisee represented what was the best, what was the greatest, what was uh, the exemplary model of spirituality. And the tax collector represented the worst. Despite their differences on the spiritual spectrum in the life of Israel, both of them went up to the temple to pray. And group prayer in Israel typically happened at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. right after animal sacrifices and incense burning. So you can imagine there's a group of Israelites standing at the bottom of the temple steps waiting to go into the temple grounds to pray. And the idea was right after the animal sacrifices were offered, well, great, let's get in there before we get any more sin and kind of gets in the way. So let's just go in while, while our sins have been kind of cleansed through these animal sacrifices. And Jesus identifies this first man as a Pharisee. And when you read about Pharisees, you immediately think of them as legalistic, controlling, bitter Jewish people who wanted to kill Jesus. And that's historically accurate. But it's important for us to recognize what Jesus' audience would have thought. The people that Jesus is speaking to, what would they have thought about this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector? We need to take the we need to take on the perspective of a first century Jew. So let me give you a little bit of background on Pharisees because it will help us understand this attitude that he has and how people thought and what people thought of him. The origin and practice of the Pharisees, a little bit of background. First, where did Pharisees come from? So remember that historically during this time period, the Romans occupied the Jewish lands. They had conquered the Jewish people. The Jewish people had been uh, ruled by different people and then they unsuccessfully tried to rule themselves. They didn't know what to do and so the Romans came in and then they never left. And so the Romans involved themselves in Jewish life and they wanted to make sure that they kept the peace. So what they decided to do was to appoint certain Jews to run the temple. Now this offended and infuriated faithful Jews because they felt that Rome had no business interfering with their worship. A group of Jews actually had the guts to object to the Roman practice. They alone stood up against the Roman the Roman government and said, you cannot. We understand we need to obey your laws and whatnot, but, and you rule over us, you have conquered us, we get that. But you cannot insert yourself in our worship. 
That would be like the hotel telling you who has to speak here. That would be like uh, your, the, the school where you meet. Saying that the, only the principal is allowed to preach in your services. So this was certainly a government overreach. And nobody really wanted to say something against these Roman people because they would just obliterate the country. But there was one group. One group of Jews who actually had the guts to object to that Roman practice. And that group eventually became the group known as the Pharisees. So you have to understand the Pharisees had won the respect of their countrymen. And as a result, they became extremely influential in Jewish life. They were, soon, they were seen as the super godly Jews of their time. They were experts on the Old Testament. And they fastidiously adhered to the Mosaic Law. If you were a Pharisee, people around you, your fellow Jews, saw you as some super Jew. Okay, so like you could pull apart your shirt and it would say J for Jew. You were this super Jew. You were, you were the epitome of what people wanted to do and how they wanted to kind of obey the law. If, 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 you, saw, if you saw some, some parents... Uh, some parents talking to their children about, hey, you got to be quiet when we go into synagogue. You know, they say, you got to be quiet. You'll be more like that Pharisee guy over there. When a Pharisee walked into a crowded room, the Jewish people got up so that that Pharisee could have a special place to sit. That was the, that was kind of the respect afforded these people known as the Pharisees. So when Jesus says that a Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, this would come as no surprise to anyone who was listening. They go, of course he did. He's a Pharisee. What did you think he was going to do? This is got a super Jew. Of course he goes to pray. He probably does this all the time. He probably does this at every opportunity the temple has for a corporate prayer. So to, do, to Jesus' original audience, you really couldn't get more religious than a Pharisee. And that's the general background on Pharisees. And now that we understand the general background of what this Pharisee would have meant, what people would have thought when Jesus said Pharisee, let's look at this particular Pharisee. What, what does this guy do? What does he say? Look with me, first of all, verse 11. He compares himself to others. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Look at the list. He says, look, I'm not like a swindler. I'm not, I'm not somebody who steals from others. I'm not unjust. I don't, I don't cheat and pervert justice. I'm not an adulterer. I'm certainly not, I'm, I'm not a sexual sinner. I'm not a tax collector. Now notice, he says I, 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 that I'm not like this. Or even like this tax collector, who probably was within visible range. Tax collectors were included here because they were, common, they were commonly considered cheats. They usually collected more than was required of the government and then they pocketed the extra. And so this Pharisee compares himself to other people. He compares himself to the lowest people in society. The thieves, the unrighteous, the adulterers, and the tax collectors. Now, after this fake Thanksgiving, I'm thank, thank you for making me me. Thank you that I'm better than other people. Thank you that I'm not as bad as them. This is what he says in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, when he says that he fasts twice a week, according to God's word, Leviticus 16.31 mentioned that there was only one required fast for the Jews once a year 
on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. But this Pharisee obviously felt that that was not enough. That he needed to go beyond the once a year fast to I fast twice a week. Secondly, he says, I pay tithes of all that I get. Of all that I get. According to God's word, Jews were supposed to tithe 10% of what they earned and give that to the government yearly. But some Pharisees took the tithes to another level, giving 10% of everything, even what they ate. So you can imagine this morning. Well, you could split up your eggs into 10 equal parts, and you would say, well, this is one part for God, and then you're going to eat 9 tenths of your serving of eggs. As if God was low on protein or something. This Pharisee, what this Pharisee had done, in addition to comparing himself with others, is that he replaced God's standards with his own standards. God asks for a fast once a year. The Pharisees fast twice a week. God asks for a 10% tithe from the produce. The Pharisee will tithe everything, even down to the things that he ate. So in this Pharisee's mind, and in his opinion, he had exceeded expectations. He kind of says, well, God, you know, you want this. I'm here. You ask for this, I give you this. You ask for 10, I give you 20. You ask for 40, I give you 50. You ask for a once a year fast, I'll do it twice a week. You ask, you ask for 10% of what I bring in, I'll do 10% of everything. And as a result of that, this Pharisee would have considered himself worthy of God's forgiveness. This Pharisee walks into the temple and he walks right into the inner court and he offers a self-congratulatory prayer to God. The Pharisee is thankful that he's better than other people and he lays out his own, his own righteousness plan before God as if he goes, look, this is the proof and the evidence that I am so great. And this Pharisee ultimately is self-focused and self-righteous and he judges himself as worthy of God's forgiveness. The prayer isn't about God, mind you. The the, the Pharisee refers to himself five times in only two verses. What's the prayer about? Seems the prayer seems to be focused on himself. And if this Pharisee were to pray today, he might say something like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like those loose living people who party hard, who work down the, down the hallway from me. I thank you that I'm not like my lazy co-workers who do the very least to get by. Thank you that I'm not some sort of non-Christian who sleeps around and has a loose moral lifestyle. Thank you that I'm not like those weak wannabe Christians who don't know scripture and who don't go to solid churches where they do expository preaching and who live for themselves instead of you. Thank you for giving me all this knowledge about theology and doctrine. I read my Bible every day. I go to church twice a week. I'm part of a small group. I'm part of a men's group. I'm part of a women's group. I I serve food at church. I help out with all of these things. You know, that's what the Pharisees' prayer would have sounded like today. And the problem of comparing ourselves with others is that it is so easy to do because we do it all the time. We compare ourselves with other people all the time. Sometimes because we have to and sometimes because we want to. When you graduated from high school, the people walking up on the stage were all dressed in some sort of robe, but some received distinctions Some had cords. Some had some sort of honorary identifier. Others did not. When you applied for college, you knew knew that you were filling out your application and you knew that your application would be compared with everybody else who applies. You versus, I don't know, 40,000 other applicants. 
At the college level, you, you've learned that sometimes your raw score is meaningless. Usually in the STEM fields. You may get a 60 out of 100, and people are like, oh, how'd you do on the test? I got a 60 out of 100. Which means nothing. Because the next question after saying a raw score of 60 is, well, what was the average? See, by even bringing that up, what was the average? What, are you saying lifetime average? Are you saying average for as long as this professor has been tenured? No, you're saying what's the average for the class. You're naturally comparing your score relative to the average for the rest of your peers in a class. We compare ourselves with other people all the time. When you apply for a job, sometimes you're sitting there and you know that you know that, that other person is probably competing for the same job. In the same room, you're kind of all waiting and you're just kind of looking at that person going, I'm like, you or is it me? Is it you or is it me? Right? And you, and you start looking, you know, so it's basically, you know, Hunger Games is a, in a waiting room. You're wondering who's going to survive? Who's going to get this job? And even after you're working, you know, you're working within the same department and you're, and you know, you know that this person above you, your supervisor is going to retire and you're wondering if the management's going to promote from within. And if you're promoting from within, well, you're going to throw your name in. And naturally you're comparing yourself with everybody else in your department to see who ought to receive the promotion. When you first meet someone, anyone, you start talking to that person, right? Oh, where are you from? What's your name? Where are you from? And, and what? What do you do for a living? And you know what? We sort people automatically when we do that. And you can almost see it in people's minds. Oh, what do you do? Oh, okay. Oh, so you're in the Bay Area. Okay, great. You live over here. Based on where they live, don't you think something? You live, oh, that's a nice neighborhood. That's a nicer neighborhood than my neighborhood. You know, and then they tell you where they work. And then you're like, oh, you work for that person. So I'm here, you're here. You work for that company. Oh, you're at this level. Oh, you're a manager. You're a vice president. And you automatically start sorting people, right? And it's almost like you start thinking about yourself compared to that person. You're talking to this person. Oh, you're a neurosurgeon. Oh. Oh, and you're, and you're doing a secondary fellowship. Oh, okay. You're subspecializing. And you're just like shrinking. You're like, oh, okay. And then, you know, before you know it, you're just like, I, 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 uh, uh, I can't even talk. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave because, uh, yeah, our, 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 our IQs are on different, different <laughs> spectrums. I'm just going to be over here and I'm going to be coloring. <laughs> You'll let me know if you need anything. We do this all the time, right? We do this all the time. And, and I'm not saying that comparing yourself with other people is naturally wrong. But sometimes we use the wrong standard. Because using the wrong standard can have eternal consequences. And in this case, the Pharisee compares himself against other people by using his own made-up standard of righteousness. And the problem with using his own standard is that the Pharisee has essentially blocked himself off from salvation. God asks for a once a year fast. The Pharisee says, oh, I'm going to take pride in fasting twice a week. God asks for a general tithe. The Pharisee gets so specific with the tithe that it's even down to what he eats. So why is self-righteousness bad? What is it that is so hurtful in self-righteousness? What is it that is so antithetical to a mature Christian being self-righteous? 
You see, unwilling to embrace God's standard of righteousness, this Pharisee is using his own standard. In other words, the Pharisee essentially is rejecting God as the ultimate judge. Instead of God, the Pharisee assumes God's position. It is as if the Pharisee said, God, your standards are not good enough, and you better move off. Here are my standards. Self-righteousness is nothing less than an outright assault on God's throne. It is rebellion against God's rule. Because after all, who are you to judge what is acceptable and what is unacceptable? Who are you to judge who should and should not be forgiven? Who are you to decide what is considered godly versus what is considered ungodly? So self-righteousness is dangerous. It is certainly bad. It is evil. And here are four practical reminders for you as you seek to cultivate humble dependence and at the same time battle self-righteousness. Number one, practical reminder number one, remember your own sinfulness before God. Right? Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Before taking the speck out of your brother's eye, take the plank out of your eye. And this ultimately goes back to what we were talking about last night, having an accurate view of yourself. Self-examination should be a a regular part of our spiritual lives. We need to carefully consider our own heart motives for what we do. And question whether we serve out of a pure heart. Or whether we have lesser motives. Remember your own sinfulness before God. Secondly, remember your limited knowledge. About others and about everything. You are not God. You do not possess his insight. And no matter how reasoned your argument or how solid your line of reasoning, you cannot ultimately know what is happening in other people's hearts. So when you are pressed and you, when you are tempted to compare yourself to others, you compare what you see in your life to what you do not know about other people. Are you the one who really sees men's hearts? Do you have that kind of access? Should you really be able to determine and decipher the thoughts and intents of other people? Of course not. Remember your own sinfulness before God. But second, remember your limited knowledge. Third, remember God's unlimited knowledge about all people. You see, God knows you thoroughly and exhaustively. He knows all of your thoughts. And he knows all the thoughts that you're glad that nobody else knows. At some point, uh, I think at, at, at some point in every dating relationship where I've, you know, counseled a couple, uh, the, the, the girl eventually comes out with some words to the effect of, I just hope he never understands how crazy I am. <laughs> because so, uh, <laughs> oftentimes, oftentimes, you know, people have weird thoughts. It's like, is that crazy? Is that, is that something that's crazy? We're all crazy. It's okay. (laughs) It is what it is. God knows about all of that craziness. God knows about all of the thoughts that we really hope nobody ever finds out we've thought. And despite knowing you this well, God offers to forgive you through Jesus Christ. You see, what's interesting is today we live in a, in a, in a photoshopped world. And how many takes did it take to get that video? How much editing was required? 
How many times do you take a photo and you have to sit for hours later after a, a one-day extravaganza? You have to sit in your bed for hours flipping through the photos, wondering which ones you want to keep and which ones you don't. We live in a, in a, very, uh, in a very photoshopped life. And oftentimes we're afraid of what people would really think of us. What if they saw my life unfiltered? God sees all of your unfiltered life. He's the one who truly knows you. He knows what you want people to know and he knows what you, peop- what, what you hope people never find out. And so his love matters a whole lot more. And his willingness to forgive is that much deeper Remember your own sinfulness before God. Number two, remember your limited knowledge. Number three, remember God's unlimited knowledge about all people. And number four, remember God's plan for progressive sanctification in believers. Becoming a Christian does not mean the end of all sin in your life. It just means that sin no longer has dominion over you doesn't mean that you won't sin ever again. We have been liberated from slavery to sin, but we will still struggle with sin until the day that we die. And all of us are on this journey to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Because nobody alive has reached the pinnacle. Nobody alive has, has claimed that they've made it. All of us are still growing. And in God's plan, some of us were saved earlier, so we've had more years to work on things. Some of us are saved later and so we have more sinful habits to deal with and to wrestle with. Regardless, God is sanctifying every single one of us and it's a journey. So just because God may have helped you grow in one area more than somebody else doesn't mean that you're better. It just means that God is gracious. This is the problem of self-righteousness. But there's not only a problem, there's also a prescription for self-righteousness, which is really the focus and, and the origin of the, the title for the message this morning. The prescription for self-righteousness is humble dependence. Now, look with me at the next passage, at the next section. Or verse 10, it says, the two men went up to the temple to pray. So one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So, so just as we looked at who a Pharisee is and what this Pharisee was about, what typified, what characterized this kind of person, we need to do the same thing with tax collectors. Now, it is a fact that everyone in the Roman Empire owed taxes to the government, but it was unclear how much they owed, especially when it came to miscellaneous taxes. So as a result, tax collectors usually collected more than what was required and they would pocket the rest. And if anybody had issues with how much the tax collector was taking, the tax collector had thugs nearby to beat you into submission. These thugs would physically intimidate and convince people to pay their taxes. And so as a result of that, the tax collector was not seen as some guy who works for the IRS. He was seen as some guy who was akin to a mafia guy. And he showed up with thugs next to him to beat you in case you didn't want to pay. 
So as a result of that, they were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. As you went to the other side, not only are you working for the man, not only are you working for the government, are you working for the other people, you are hurting your own people. What kind of, you're, not, you're a sellout, you're a traitor. You beat fellow countrymen so you can get wealthier. You work for our oppressors. Tax collectors were considered traitors to Israel. And as a result of that, as a result of their widespread mistreatment of their fellow countrymen, and as, and as a result of their involvement in beating people until they gave taxes, a tax collector, collector was treated as if he were not Jewish. It was as if, it was as if the society said, man, you... You are such a traitor that you don't deserve to be called a Jew. We will not treat you as one. They were regarded with the same level of disdain as prostitutes. The Jewish Talmud, a commentary on the Old Testament, taught that it was righteous, it was righteous to lie and to deceive a tax collector because that's what he deserved. Such was the animus against these kinds of people. They were considered immoral extortionists. And therefore, no tax collector could enter into the inner courts of the temple. They were considered considered unclean. And this is why in Jesus' parable, it says here that the tax collector was standing some distance away. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. So tax collectors were cut off from their own people and from the one true God because of their sinful living. They were the ultimate social outcasts. And they had forfeited their relationship with God and with man. And so now that we understand, this is a tax collector. Whenever you hear the word tax collector, just remember what I just, what I just talked about. Because that would pretty much typify every tax collector mentioned in scripture. Let's talk about what this tax collector thought. What do we see in his life? Look with me at verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's just break down every single phrase there. He sees himself, first of all, as unworthy to approach God. This is why he's standing some distance away. They're ostracized by their own people. They're considered non-Jews because they betrayed their own people. And as a result, this Jew could not enter into the temple courts, into the inner courts to pray to God. And so he sees himself accurately. He sees himself as being unworthy. I am not worthy to pray to God. Verse 13 continues and he says he was beating his breast. The typical position of humble prayer was to stand with your head down and your hand over your chest. But this tax collector was so broken over his own sin that he went one step further. It says that he beat his breast. He beat his chest. And this was a sign of brokenness. This is a sign that is similar to when a Jew would tear his robes and put ashes on his head. One Jewish commentary says this, The righteous beat their heart because the heart is the source of all evil longing. This tax collector didn't have to be told that he was a sinner. He knew it. He felt it. And he lived it. 
He hated his sin so badly that he wished he could rip his very heart out. He was anguished over his sin. And therefore he beats his breast. He was broken over his sin. Verse 13 also continues and says, Oh, this is what he says. He says, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is a man who begs. He's desperate. He desperately asks for God's mercy. He begs for God's mercy. This is a man who has been humbled by his life of sin. This is a man tormented by his own depravity and convicted by his unworthiness before God. And so he begs for God's mercy. He admits that he's a sinner and he calls himself a sinner. He just he doesn't even call himself a sinner. He says the sinner, not just a sinner. You see, the tax collector is not storming God's throne, pointing a finger at God, and demanding forgiveness. He's not going up to God and saying, look at what I've done. I'm so great. I'm so thankful I'm not like that Pharisee. This tax collector goes up to God's throne and grovels. He's desperate. And he begs for God's forgiveness. And so as a result of that, verse 14 tells us what happens. Jesus says, I tell you this man, this tax collector, I tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other. other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men, two very different approaches to God. One was forgiven and the other was not. This is what it means when Jesus says that the tax collector went away justified. Because he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this brings us to the ultimate prescription for self-righteousness, humility. It's this humble, desperate dependence upon God. The antidote for self-righteousness is humble dependence on God. Yes, it is easy to compare. Yes, it is easy to see that you may be more obedient in one aspect of your life than another person is in, an, in one area. But humility requires that you see yourself comprehensively for who you really are. A sinner in need of God's grace. You are not worthy of God's forgiveness no matter how good you think you are. You cannot earn God's forgiveness no matter how much you try. And so how would this kind of humble dependence show up not only in your own life, but in the life of your church? Well, first, you would see more confession and repentance. When you see your sin, you got to deal with it. Admit it, confess it, ask for God's forgiveness because Christ has earned it, not because you deserve it. Admit and confess openly your total inability to save yourself and throw yourself down at the foot of God's throne of grace. Look to Christ as the only way you can be forgiven because what you could not earn, Christ did, and what you could not pay, Christ willingly paid. And you must believe that by faith, God will forgive your sins. 
Because he has promised that he would. At the same time, you must continually resolve to put off that sin that so easily entangles. Analyzing how and why you sinned and taking steps to eliminate opportunities for sin. You know, it's really easy for us as churchgoers who sit under solid teaching. If I were to ask you, okay, raise your hand if you're a sinner. Everybody will raise their hands. Even the little kids. Right? Now when I ask, okay, what, what was the sin? It's quiet. See, we're all willing to generally admit that we are sinners. That we have sinned and that we continue to sin and that we regret the sin and that we ought to loathe the sin. We ought to repent of the sin. It's just when you press for details, everybody shuts up. But this is supposed to be a family. This is supposed to be a tight-knit body of believers. This is supposed to be a team for Jesus. And if you can't tell somebody where you are struggling or what sins you are dealing with in a small group, in a men's group, in a women's group, then what kind of family do you think this is? Because in addition to seeing confession and repentance in the life of the church, there also ought to be, secondly, compassion and support. Instead of being a place where everyone judges everyone, the church ought to be a place characterized by compassion and support. We can have compassion for each other because we all struggle with sin. Though oftentimes we struggle, we may struggle with different sins. We can support each other through prayer and accountability. And when being tempted, you can reach out for support from your fellow family members. Galatians 6 tells us that we ought to help bear one another's burdens. But you can't bear what you do not know. You cannot support where you are ignorant. May I say also that Roger cannot shepherd issues that he is unaware of? So there ought to be confession and repentance in the life of the church. Number two, there ought to be compassion and support. And third and finally, there ought to be a teachable spirit to the word of God from the people of God. You know, God is not some uncaring deity, remote and far off in the heavens, kind of, I wonder what's going on down there on earth. He, he is involved. He knows. He is intimately acquainted with what we are going through. And he has given us his word for guidance, for instruction in our fight against sin. All of us need to cultivate a teachable spirit to the word of God. It doesn't matter who uses the Bible. It just matters that the Bible is God's word. God's word comes with his authority. So whether it comes from a child or whether it comes from a great theologian, the power and authority resides in God's word because it is of God. My children are now old enough to quote scripture to me. <laughs> it's cute on a good day. <laughs> they say, Dad, God says not to be angry. And I say, this is true. 
going to have to take it. Why? Because my children are so great? Because, because my children are more spiritually mature than I am with regards to anger? No. I take it because it's God's word. And I model that for my kids. I Hopefully I model that for my kids. If they use that, you're right. And I find myself in my own home confessing and repenting. Because why? Because that's authentic Christianity. I don't want to teach my kids that there's a second savior. You know, there's Jesus and there's daddy. Daddy needs a savior too. When it comes to marks of Christian maturity, I hope that all of us can embrace a humble dependence upon God. I hope that we never stop being keenly aware of our constant need of God's grace. And as you gather in groups, as you speak to each other during the weekend, as you meet for fellowship or for service on a Sunday morning, I hope you will speak boldly of your love for God's grace and your constant dependence upon him. In God's plan of redemption, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He goes out to rescue and brings us back. And he gives us a new family. He does not leave us alone. Not only does he give us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, he also places us in a new family. And the family has been forged by blood. Not the blood flowing through your veins, but the blood that was shed at the cross. And God did not put you into a family so that you can be strangers. He put you into a family so that your family experience could be a foretaste of perfect fellowship in heaven. In this newfound family, all of us can testify to the goodness and grace of our Heavenly Father as we continue to grow to depend on Him with all humility. You see, we all need Jesus. We all need God's grace. There's not a single one of us who's a real blood-bought believer who would say, I don't, God's grace is for the weak. It's for the, oh, that's for the beginning, the beginner Christians. That's for the new Christians. Those are the amateur, that's the amateur hour Christians. We all desperately need God's grace. So why don't we talk about it? Why don't we talk about how we need God's grace? In what ways we are growing to depend on His grace? Church, every time we, every time we meet together as a body, I, I think we ought to know and recognize that this is a special group. It's, it's a collection of blood-bought, Christ-redeemed family members. And the picture of a family ought not to be a dysfunctional family. It ought to be a healthy family. One where we love each other well. Where we support and care for each other with, with compassion. One where when we confess our sins... 
we find encouragement and support in our battle against the temptations that we face. My prayer is that this church would continue to be family. That family, the word and the concept would become more clear. That when people hear you talk about this church family, they recognize this is something special. You know, we live in a day and an age when we have so many ways to communicate with each other. It's ridiculous. You have a list of contacts. You can click on a contact and choose, well, text, poke, like, you know, DM, like whatever. You... We could do anything. We can email, you know, we can we send all, WhatsApp, we could, all different apps, all different messengers, and we can, we can communicate more with people in more ways than we have ever communicated before. And yet, do we have community? What are the barriers that prevent us from having that community, from cultivating it? I would say oftentimes it's the sin of self-righteousness. So show and demonstrate your humble dependence upon God through drawing near to Him, to God, and to others with that kind of humility, with that kind of humble dependence upon God. That is my hope and prayer for this church. As I meet and talk to a lot of you, I know that a lot of you are, are relatively newer. But my hope and prayer is that through retreats like this, by gathering under God's word, that you would grow closer to each other. So that when you say church family, it resonates deep within your soul. Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for a reminder, Lord, from your word about having this humble dependence on you and what that might look like in the context of church life. Lord, we long to be closer to you, but we also desire to grow closer to each other. And so we pray that you would make that happen and that you would work within our hearts so that that might become fruit in our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.